Now, in the lead-up to Easter weekend, we are studying Mark's account of the passion of Jesus, the events surrounding his death and resurrection. We are studying, therefore, the very center of human history and the very center of the gospel. Today, Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and before Pilate, the Roman governor. And uh, you'll find the passage, if you have a church Bible, on page 851. Mark chapter 14, reading from verse 53. Mark chapter 14, at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to me? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Now look on to chapter 15 and verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him. And kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Well, let's pray for God's help as we study this together. Our Father, help us to understand the significance of these events that we might be changed through that understanding. And we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Last Sunday, Sam helped us to understand, to grasp the agony that Jesus contemplated the agony that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden, the Lord Jesus contemplated the wrath of God that he would have to endure on the cross. And we saw the Son of God who had silenced the fury of the storms, exercised demons, healed the sick, raised the dead, fell to his knees, undone, in tears, sweating drops of blood, asking his father if there be any other way than the wrath of God poured out on his head. And to his prayer, is there any other way? Heaven was silent. If men and women like you and me are to be forgiven, then the Son of God must bear the wrath of God. There is no other way. And then we saw how Jesus galvanized by that conviction, overwhelmed in his humanity with a desire to save us and suffer himself, And strengthened by the Spirit of God, he set his face to the cross. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, verses 43 to 52 of chapter 14. Arrested by the Jewish religious authorities to whom he had come as their Messiah. Together with a mob armed with swords and clubs. It would have been, I guess, around midnight. How do we know? Well, 
Jesus and his disciples had come to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Passover meal. Around midnight, he was arrested. In terms of time, verse 52 of chapter 14 is around midnight. And he would be nailed to the cross by nine o'clock that same morning. Events here move at a ruthless speed. Now, there are two trials. First, before the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council. And that trial is described in verses 53 to 65 of chapter 14. And that trial would have taken place in the middle of the night, maybe from one o'clock through four o'clock in the morning, something like that. The second trial was before Pilate, the Roman governor. And Mark records that second trial in chapter 15, verses 6 to 20. And uh, that would have taken place at first light, maybe 6 in the morning, something like that. Two trials. And in between, typical of Mark's writing style, Peter's denial of Jesus in verses 66 to 72, and uh, we'll come back to that at the end. Now, you'll see on the service sheet uh, three headings. We'll work through them in turn. Firstly, innocence and injustice. My wife said to me this morning, as she often does on a Sunday, tell me what you're going to be saying this morning so I can pray. Wives of ministers and preachers do that. We thank God for them. And I said to Sally, I'm going to be saying simple things that are astonishingly profound. And I want you to be willing and open to the Holy Spirit to teach you what is so familiar to many of us that you will understand how profound it is. Innocence and injustice. That's our first heading. Now, reading the accounts of the trials of Jesus, both before the Sanhedrin and Pilate, what strikes you and is what is meant to strike us is the innocence of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus and the injustice. It is a gross miscarriage of justice. The innocent man Condemned. Consider first his trial before the Sanhedrin. It is a sham. They cannot find any evidence to condemn Jesus. So verse 55, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. No evidence. And even those who did testify against Jesus, or I guess had their arms twisted hard enough to do so, did not agree. For many, verse 56, did stand up and bore false witness against him. They lied, but their lies didn't agree. But their testimony did not agree, 56. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It's as if the trial orchestrated behind the scenes when it began to happen just fell apart, maybe because it was half past two in the morning. 
just fell apart. Nobody agreed. Then Caiaphas, the high priest, addressed Jesus personally, verse 60. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Now just think about this if it's familiar to you. It's a sham. All manner of people are saying things about Jesus that are untrue. And Caiaphas says to Jesus, have you no answer to make Jesus to all these accusations? What would you have done? What would I have done? I would have defended myself. I would have spoken back and exposed the lies. But Jesus said nothing. Surely Jesus should protest his innocence. Surely he would speak and defend himself. Here's a verse from Isaiah. Many of you will know this. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why did he not open his mouth? Because the innocent son of God, the unblemished lamb of God, needed to die. Only once in his trial before the Sanhedrin does Jesus break his silence in response to the high priest's direct question as to whether he is the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus responds, verse 61, I am. And then this scary bit from Jesus. And you will see, and he's saying this to Caiaphas, to his face, and you will see. And he's saying it to all of us, and you will see. The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And he's quoting here from Daniel 7, Psalm 110. And he is claiming to be God. But more than that, he is saying, Caiaphas and us here this morning. One day you will see me not like a lamb being led to the slaughter. But on a chariot as a king. A mighty king. Coming again as judge of all. And Caiaphas, you will bow before me and cry for mercy. And so will all humanity. If they have not believed in Jesus as Savior. It's a frightening thing Jesus says to his accusers. And then Caiaphas ranges round the Sanhedrin. He's holding court, literally. And Caiaphas says, you've heard his blasphemy. What's your verdict? And the Jewish ruling council, the leaders of God's special chosen people in history, the people to whom the Messiah first came, all condemned him to death. Innocent, yet condemned, and they began. And we need to appreciate the shock of this. Think of this Jewish court 
they began to spit on him. Strike him, taunt him, and beat him. Isaiah 53, again, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The sheer antagonism and brutality done to the Son of God is shocking. Innocent. And injustice. Now, the same point is made in the second trial with Pilate. Having reached their decision to condemn Jesus, very early the next morning, chapter 15, verse 1, probably five or six in the morning, the Jewish religious authorities turned Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor. Why? Well, probably because Roman authority was needed for a death sentence, but there were politics involved. Surely, uh, the strong arm of Rome against Jesus, especially the shame and ignominy and disgrace of death by crucifixion, that would snuff out any likelihood of uh, his followers continuing his mission after his death. Now, we can infer from chapter 15, verse 2, that the primary charge the Sanhedrin brought to Pilate's attention, justifying the death sentence, was that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. That was the card they played with Pilate. It's a smart card. Pilate, this guy is claiming to be a king. You need to get rid of him. And Pilate says to him, so are you the king of the Jews? And uh, Jesus responds, you have said so. It's not exactly defense, is it? It's not likely to let you off. You've said so. And uh, then the accusations about many things come thick and fast from the chief priests. And Pilate again asked Jesus, verse 4, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Why did Jesus not speak in his defense? Because the innocent Son of God, the unblemished Lamb of God, had to keep going to the cross. Now, as the trial before Pilate goes on, it is clear that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. Verse 9, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Pilate doesn't say, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? He says, surely you want Jesus. And verse 14, when the crowd is crying out, crucify him, Pilate says to them, why? What evil has he done? Jesus is innocent yet condemned. Now after the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus, they spat on him, struck him, taunted him and beat him. After Pilate had condemned Jesus and scourged him. Don't allow your mind to think that Pilate was empathetic or sympathetic to Jesus. He saw injustice, but then he scourged him. In other words, he whipped him to within an inch of his life. Handed him over. The soldiers, verse 16, led him out. What did they do? They spat on him. They beat him. They scourged him. They taunted him. They mocked him. And they crucified him. 
one of the astonishing things we'll see on Friday as we gather for Good Friday is that one of the people who stood there, in fact, the guy in charge, the centurion who supervised his execution, would stand at the foot of his cross and say, in the end, surely this man was the son of God. It's astonishing. That even in this most aggressive of moments of antagonism against Jesus, the Spirit of God was at work in that man's heart. Sheer antagonism and brutality, innocence and injustice. Now here's the profound bit. Because this is the point. We're not meant to look on and say, yes, he was innocent. Yes, this was unjust. We're meant to see, yes, he had to be. You would not, I would not be sitting here as a forgiven sinner if Jesus had not been innocent and condemned. It took the death of the innocent Son of God without sin to absorb the wrath of God for sinful men and women like you and me. Now, so do you realize why Jesus did not open his mouth and protest his innocence? Do you realize why Jesus said nothing that day? Do you realize why he went like a lamb to the slaughter? For you. His silence guaranteed his condemnation. His silence was kept for you. He went like a lamb to the slaughter for you and me. He did not struggle. He did not fight. He did not rally against the injustice. He laid down his life for you. This week as I've studied this, and we preachers get to wrestle with this all week, it's really profoundly affected me that he kept his mouth shut to ensure that he went to the cross for me. Now, second point on the sheet. Substitution and redemption. As uh, we study the passion of Jesus, the events of his death and resurrection, the very drama of what is described teaches us what the gospel is and means and does. In other words, the very drama of the events around his death teaches us what his death achieves for us. Now consider again the trial before Pilate at the Passover. And remember that these events take place at the time of the Passover feast. Pilate's custom is just something that Pilate did. I guess he did this just to, just to keep the Jews in check every year. Pilate's custom was to release a prisoner to the crowd. And at the time of Jesus' trial, Pilate was holding a prisoner called Barabbas, whom we are told had committed murder in the insurrection. 
I guess, some uprising or rebellion. And the crowd, verse 8, came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. In other words, release one of the prisoners. Pilate offers them Jesus, verses 9 and 10. But the chief priests, and you can imagine the scene, they didn't need social media to work the crowd. They just got out there into the crowd and they said, come on, when Pilate says to you, who do you want? You guys need to shout, we want Barabbas. They incited the crowd to ask for Barabbas. Now, it's helpful to appreciate, I think, the drama of the scene here. The trial probably would have taken place in Herod's palace, where Pilate would have been in residence during the Passover. And an archaeological excavation indicates that uh, Pilate would have sat at the stop, at the top of a, 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 a flight of stone steps on a, on a kind of pavement. He would have sat on his judgment seat with a crowd at the bottom of the steps, and with two prisoners, Barabbas on his left and Jesus on his right, standing beside each other, facing the crowd. Now contrast these two men. Barabbas, guilty, without question, and without question, worthy of condemnation. Jesus, Innocent, without question, and without question, not deserving of condemnation. Yet, it is Jesus who goes to the cross and Barabbas is set free. In other words, Jesus substitutes for Barabbas. And that takes us to the very heart of the gospel Jesus substituted for us. Now, you may think that you are nothing like Barabbas. So set Barabbas to one side for a moment and stand with me before a holy God. We stand before God as sinners, guilty, Deserving of condemnation. And then we look. And we see Jesus. Innocent. Deserving of nothing. And we feel his silence. And we watch him. Like a lamb. Being led to the slaughter. And we find ourselves free because of him. Now, we do not know what Barabbas thought that night. We do not know what it would have felt like when some soldier took a key and unlocked the shackles and the chains that bound him. We do not know if he was thankful The one thing we do know is that he knew that because Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was not. Now, if you are a Christian, if you have trusted in Jesus for your forgiveness and salvation, 
How does it make you feel? And the events of his passion are not only events that should grip our minds, but our hearts. How does it make you feel that because Jesus hung on that cross, bled, and died, you have been set free? This is how it made Wesley feel. And I paraphrase the great man's words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in his blood? Died he for me? Amazing love. My chains fell off. My heart was free because my Savior died for me. If you're not a Christian, we're striking in the first service today. A number of people were here who are not Christians. How does it make you feel if you are not a Christian like these Roma people? That however unworthy you think you are or however good you think you are, that someone was willing to die in your place and suffer the wrath of God that you might be free. I said to one of these people in the first service as I had a conversation with her afterwards, do you want that? And I said to her, you can have it now by faith. Surely, though, there is a price to pay. Forgiveness, freedom for all eternity cannot come cheap, can it? There is a price to pay. There is a redemption price. A redemption price is the price that needs to be paid to let somebody off. And what is that price, that redemption payment that needs to be paid? It is the death of Jesus, the cost of your and my forgiveness is the death of Jesus, which means the wrath of Almighty God poured out in its fury on his beloved Son. That is the cost. How does that make you feel as a Christian? Substitution and redemption. Now, third and finally, desertion and denial. Jesus went to the cross all by himself. That's a a more colloquial way of saying he went to the cross all alone. He went to the cross all by himself. And he had to for two reasons. One, because only Jesus could do what he did on the cross. Nobody else could die as an innocent 
person fully God and fully man and bear the wrath of God and be a perfect atoning sacrifice for sin. Only he could do that, so only he went to do it. That's one reason he went on his own to die. The other reason is because every human person needs to realize and almost watch him go alone. Realizing that he had to die for us. It's almost as if we have to watch him and let go of any sense that we have that we can hold him back or he doesn't need to go for us. We have to come to the point where we stand and watch him go alone to die. Knowing that we are sinners. And when you realize that, that's what it means that the Holy Spirit is leading you to repentance and contrition and need. Jesus goes alone. Uh, when he was arrested, all the disciples and his followers deserted him as Jesus said they would. All except Peter who hung on in there and followed Jesus to his trial before the Sanhedrin. Now before, let's not just knock Peter crashing down. I would not have had the bottle to follow Jesus into that temple court on the edges of that mob. And Peter said, and Jesus had said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. And he meant it. And he went into the temple courts. Read with me from chapter 14, verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Gentile. Now, listen to this. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. That's pretty extreme. I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now these words at the end are striking. He broke down and wept. That is somebody coming to terms with their need of the cross. You do not become a Christian because you decide on the spot of the moment to make a decision that is a kind of lifestyle choice. You become a Christian when you break down and weep conscious of your sin. Jesus 
died alone because everybody needs the cross. Very often, people refuse to come to Jesus for forgiveness because they think they are too good. Inger has reminded us of people this morning who do not come to the cross because they think they are too bad. And I suspect that in our sanitized middle-class culture in this side of Europe, oftentimes people do not come to Jesus because they think they are too bad. Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus is strong. It's almost blasphemy. Would Peter have thought that he had gone too far? Just flip over in your Bibles to chapter 16, verse 6. This is uh, the angel to the women at the empty tomb. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples. And look at the next two words. They're wonderful words. If you are Peter and Peter. And uh, you can imagine when the women ran back to the disciples and said, look, Jesus is alive. And they would have thought, you must be joking. They said, no, we've seen him. (laughs) I saw him. And Peter in the corner, he would have had his head down, looking at the back. And, and Mary said, do you know Peter? Do you know what the angel said? She said, go and tell the disciples and Peter. It's very kind, isn't it? Very gracious. And of course, uh, The Lord Jesus did meet Peter very personally again at the shore of the Sea of Galilee that morning. And he asked him three different questions. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So no one is too good nor too bad for salvation. Now I want to close with this. Peter's reaction in the middle of the night when he denied Jesus and broke down and wept, is not just the experience before someone becomes a Christian. Is it not our experience as Christians to deny Jesus, to say stuff about him, or to him in our minds, or out loud, that is just awful. The hardest pastoral conversations I have with people is where they think they have committed an unforgivable sin. One of the worst features of depressive illness is people thinking that they have said stuff or thought stuff about the Lord Jesus that is cursing him blaspheming against him, just like Peter did. Or you disappoint the Lord Jesus, or you grieve his heart, or you just don't go to him with a sin 
that has sat at level two on the volume for 20 years. You just don't do it. Because you don't believe or the devil won't let you believe that he will forgive that sin and, and will accept the fact that you have lived, and preachers are guilty of this as much as anyone, a life that is a bit of a sham. And a text like this in Scripture says to us, stop it. Go and tell his disciples and Peter. If you think, and I don't know if there's anyone who thinks this, if you think you have committed some sin that is unforgivable as a Christian, and you have a contrite, anxious, wrestling heart because of it, failure never needs to be the final word. Never. Never. So go and tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, its power, its relevance. Help us to understand the profound truths concerning the death of your Son. We thank you, Lord, with a deep sense of thanksgiving that he kept silent and did not offend himself for us. We thank you that he substituted for us and that as we watch him hang on that cross, and realize that we are free because of that, then we have understood the gospel. And thank you for these wonderful words, both in terms of coming into salvation and in terms of the ongoing Christian life. Go and tell my disciples and Peter. Failure need never be the final word. Help us to hear these words that the Lord Jesus would ask of Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do we? Help us to answer that question with all the sincerity of honest hearts and feel and know and experience the forgiveness and the restitution that the gospel brings to us again and again. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.